The analytical side is we're looking at average median income and all those kind of typical crime metrics, et cetera, walkability to pick what places are not so good. But really, you need to spend a lot of time in that market. And that's the soft side of it. You have to understand it. You have to walk it. You have to talk to brokers. You have to constantly be in touch with that market to get there. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Ray Hyman. Today we're learning about building portfolios of multifamily properties to sell them to Wall Street investors. Very interesting strategy of buying properties on Main Street to sell them to Wall Street. We learn about buying two to 15 units at a time, packaging them up, and selling them to big money investors. How that works, where they find the properties, where they find the buyers on Wall Street, the whole transaction and value add process, why Wall Street investors buy properties like this and the types of multiples that they'll pay and so much more. A lot of great knowledge in this one. It's a very unique strategy and I appreciate Ray coming on the show to teach us about it. You're gonna learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investments. To date, I've acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate investments. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. That's when we're helping you escape the Wall Street casino. Once again, our guest today is Ray Hyman. Let's get into it. Ray, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you invest in and how you escaped the investment banking world? Yeah. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So Ray Hyman here, you know, what we invest in is what, you know, we like to call mini multi. And so, you know, we are multifamily real estate investors, but we do that a little bit differently. So we're going after the lower middle market. And these are really, you know, sort of the smallest apartment buildings that you can imagine. Anywhere from two to 15 units is where we specialize. And this is the part of the market that we always call you know, too big for flippers and too small for developers, which if you think about that, it gives us a tremendous competitive advantage where, you know, a lot of the other groups that might be interested in this type of asset, it's either way too big for them because they're only, you know, scaled and capitalized to do a single family home, or it's so small that it's way under their investment radar um, if they're a developer. And so that is the place where we kind of get the best deals and can buy a lot every month. We actually do anywhere from 15 to 20 units per month right now. And the other part of our model, you know, it's a little bit different is that instead of kind of buying these properties and, and holding them, maybe selling them over time, instead, we add a ton of value through renovations. So a lot of these properties need, you know, 20 to 50% of the dollars that we spend on them are in renovations. And then we package them in portfolios for exit to institutional buyers. So, you know, we were talking a little bit a little bit before about it, but you know, it's coming from a Wall Street perspective. It's sort of leaving Wall Street, going to Main Street to operate, and then turning around and selling back to Wall Street and back to institutional investors at kind of that highest price per unit. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, what we're doing. 
and what we always like to say is that we're you know sort of institutionalizing this part of the market. Very cool, very cool. So there's so much to dig into here. I think first I'd start with one of the top reasons that you know folks in my space say that we buy 100, 200 you know units at a time in, in one place is because of the economies of scale. When you're buying two to 15 units at a time and packaging that up, how do you get to the point where you're obtaining some economies of scale? Like where do you have to get? How close do the properties have to be to one another to get those economies of scale? Everything around building the economies of scale. How do you do that? Yeah. So economies of scale is super key to what we're doing because it is a it is a struggle. It is a, a challenge to get there. The first step though is that we are always 10 to 15 minutes drive time to sort of downtown area or wherever the major employment centers are in the markets where we invest. So we we keep a pretty tight radius. We think about the MSA as a whole, but for the most part, we're in the most core neighborhoods. So everything's fairly close together. But what we've done, you know, in a kind of a single term is group purchasing. So whether that's insurance or contractor work or maintenance work, whatever it is, we put on a multi-property contract, a single vendor. And so that allows us to keep our costs super low and it sort of mimics what a larger building would look like. So, you know, we're never going to be as low cost per unit as a 250 unit building, but, you know, we can get pretty close. And, you know, we don't have to cover costs like a doorman or, you know, maintaining a gym or other kind of common area stuff, because these are smaller apartment buildings that just don't have that sort of thing. So, you know, we keep it, we keep it pretty tight. We use tech every single place that we can, and we install tons of processes and systems so that, you know, everything gets reviewed, fixed, signed off on, you know, lowest cost, three you know, kind of quotes per project, sort of a process to to keep all of our costs in that, you know, right range. And we develop our kind of build our own economies of scale that way. Interesting. Okay. So when you talk about being 10 to 15 minutes from downtown, major employment centers, things along those lines, my mind goes to understanding the different sub markets of where you're investing. Give you an example. So I live in Richmond, Virginia. If you take a 10 to 15 minute drive time out of downtown in different kinds of directions, you're going to get very different parts of town depending on which direction you're driving from downtown. So how do you do that analysis at a block by block, submarket by submarket level to know, you know, what you're investing in and the types of areas, classes, all of that? Yeah, that's probably the most important thing of what we that's probably the most important area where we add value is really understanding neighborhood by neighborhood and block by block. And it's I like to think of it in two buckets. There's a analytical side to it, and then there's a soft side to it. The analytical side is, you know, we're looking at, you know, average median income and all those kind of typical crime metrics, et cetera, walkability to pick, you know, what places are, you know, not so good, et cetera. But really, you need to spend a lot of time in that market. And that's the soft side of it. You have to understand it. You have to walk it. You have to talk to brokers. You have to constantly be in touch with that market to get there. We are based in New York, but we spend, you know, every other week we're in one of our submarkets. And that's a good amount of what we do uh, while we're there is, you know, we'll stay in an Airbnb, we'll we'll walk the town, we'll see the kind of things that we would want to do. We stay there over the weekend. We spent a lot of time there. I actually lived in one of our submarkets for about a year in 2020. I live in Pittsburgh, actually, is where your sister is. And that is, you know, that's where the value comes from. Because what we're trying to get to is you know, a, a very high paid, you know, work, 
not necessarily workforce, but in that bucket for median income, you can think eighty to one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year for household income. That's the kind of tenant we want to go after. So we need to pick the submarkets and the neighborhoods that support that. You know, so we're in the four or five neighborhoods that are the hot neighborhoods that if you know you mentioned it to somebody that's from there, they'd be like, "Oh, that's a really cool place. I love going there on the weekend, whatever." And that is where our properties are. And it takes really understanding the market to to get there. And some, you know, sometimes you're tempted to kind of go off the beaten path a little bit and pick, you know, a neighborhood that's on the rise, et cetera, which is great, but that's not what we're about. You know, we can add a lot of value through renovations and portfolio exit. So for us, it's not worth the risk of kind of, you know, taking a prop bet on a new neighborhood. Great. Okay. So I'm glad you mentioned adding value between renovating the properties and then this this particular exit strategy of rolling up the portfolios and selling them up. Can you break down the two different components there? I mean, value add by renovating the property. People people might have listeners might have a more a better understanding of how that works, but also rolling them up and selling them to to Wall Street. Let's break those two down and how they actually work for you. Yeah. So that is one of the things that we're always kind of trying to pick apart and, and explain to people. But the way to really frame it with, you know, from a math perspective is what we do is we tend to buy at $100 per square foot. When we're finished with renovations, we're anywhere from $150 to $170 per square foot total all in. So these are good renovations. You know, they're near luxury finishes. They just, you know, don't have a gym or anything like that in the building, but they have washer dryer and unit and all those things that are like, wow, you go into this unit. That's a, you know, that's amazing. That's a, that's a a great place to live. And then when we exit, we kind of exit in that 240 to $270 per square foot range. If we didn't do that as a portfolio, it would look a lot more like 200. So what we always like to think about is, you know, when we buy something and finish renovating it, if we turned around and sold it the next day, we'd probably be somewhere between 1.2 and 1.4 times the you know dollars that we put into it. So that's kind of the value add component, somewhere like 30% you know flip value on it, which is fairly typical. But then when you exit as a portfolio, you get up into that kind of 60% value on top of what you paid. And we're at the kind of 1.6 times the dollars that we had to put into something. And so, you know, before leverage, if you're in that kind of 1.6 range, you're in a pretty good spot because after leverage, you know, that turns into a 2.5, 2.6, et cetera. Great, great. Okay. And it's good to have that. That gives you multiple potential exit strategies because if the Wall Street investors suddenly lost their appetite for this type of product, if that was your only option, then you're going to be in a bad spot. But if you can sell it back to the market for a return, then that puts you in a better position, you know, to mitigate your risk. So the next thing is, you know, knowing who to call, having those relationships on Wall Street and, you know, how did you put those pieces together? I mean, is that a result of your professional background? I mean, if you told me that I had to call Wall Street and sell them, you know, our portfolio, I'd be like, I'd be at a loss as to who do I pick up the phone and, you know, make the call to. So how do you work that problem? Yeah. So it's a combination of knowing a lot of the end, vi- end buyers and being able to create interest, but also understand interest in a way that allows you to market the portfolio better at exit. So really focusing on cash flow instead of you know, pretty pictures of the property, really focusing on picking hyper core locations and being able to show some form of a risk hedge, which one of the things they like is a, you know, a scattered site portfolio doesn't have the same risk that a single site asset does. 
you know, no matter what might happen to it, tax changes, et cetera. And so building a portfolio that matches that appetite, but then it's not just like we're selling it to people that we know. We go out with a best in class brokerage. So, you know, we're going to pick a CBRE or if there's a local brokerage, which is, is true in some markets that have a lot of experience exiting portfolios to Wall Street, that's kind of the best way to go. That's how you're going to create a bidding war and get the best of, you know, whether it's Wall Street, a private equity fund, a multifamily office, an international investment fund that are, you know, wants to get exposure to a market like the Midwest, but all the deals they look at are in Austin. That's where you really get the highest price per unit. But, you know, taking a quick step back, I'm from Cleveland originally. So I'm a, I'm a, a, a very much so a Midwesterner, Browns fan and a Main Streeter, you know, by, by upbringing. I went to college in New York and I, you know, worked in a lot of kind of Wall Street settings right after right after school. So I did investment banking. I worked at JP Morgan. I worked at Booz & Co. in their acquisition strategy team, advised on you know over $3.5 billion worth of corporate transactions. I worked at a larger private equity fund doing healthcare, real estate, and technology investing. So very you know Wall Street style stuff. And that's where you know having that perspective allowed us to kind of meld the Main Street buy with the Wall Street exit. And that's how we get you know the best entry price, rather the lowest entry price and the highest exit price per unit. So that's really our you know kind of philosophy. Great, cool. I'm curious if there's anything in particular that you've noticed that a, a non-Wall Street background type of real estate investor, a misconception that they would have about what Wall Street investors are looking for when they buy these portfolios? Like, what would we get wrong about what those guys want? Yeah, so there's so many things about the way that local folks think about real estate, which is not a Main Street, Wall Street, East Coast, Midwest, any, it's not a comment like that. Every single market has, has its own idiosyncrasy to the way that they value real estate. Is it on a per unit basis? Is it on a per square foot basis? Do they actually think about cash flow? When they do think about cash flow, how do they model it? So on and so forth. And so there's a big gap between the way that we value something locally versus the actually fairly standardized way that Wall Street values something on a national level. You know, the number one thing is that they're cash flow oriented. You know, they see it like a, you know, mortgage-backed security or a sing large single-family roll-up or a REIT, you know, they're not looking at a, you know, how many units and how nice do they look kind of a perspective, which plays into cash flow and rents and everything. But what they're really concerned with is how much cash flow before debt service you're producing every year. And can you prove that? Is it simply pro forma or do you have audited real financials that show one to two years worth of great cash flow? So one of the things that we do is we hold properties for you know, two to three years after we've, you know, finished renovating them, leased them up and kind of bundled them into a portfolio so that we produce that that cash flow value. The other thing is the scattered site risk hedging. They appreciate that that piece of of real estate. You know, there is, especially when you're exiting a single asset, you do limit your end buyer pool in a lot of ways to folks that buy single assets, because a lot of the larger institutional investors want something that's spread out. So if you have an asset that includes some kind of geographical hedging, that's great. Ours have multi-neighborhood within a single market hedging, but then we also offer exits that are across markets, but have a similar theme. And that brings me to the next thing, which is theme. 
you know, Wall Street investors are looking for a very clear, attractive theme to an investment. It might be Midwest, sticky jobs, healthcare and education, recession resistant type markets. That's a that's a theme to go after, right? And then the last thing is just yield. There is obviously a you know higher interest rate environment right now, but also a highly volatile interest rate environment right now. And so you know in the present, probably for the next year and a half, two years, being able to offer an asset that is high or higher yield than interest rates is a big deal. And so you know our in our case, our our yields are you know yield on cost is up into the nine percent. Which is good because you know interest rates are in that you know high fives low sixes range and where people can actually finance multifamily properties. But keeping that arbitrage or that gap between where interest rates are and where your yields are is key. But those are the things that you know Wall Street is thinking about a lot, and a you know local investor is not thinking about it that way. And so being able to bridge the gap and then take advantage of the arbitrage between those two things is key. And I'll give one quick example: is that you know, we find properties that are maybe too expensive on a per unit basis. So investors in the area have kind of gone away from it, but it actually has incredible cash flow characteristics just because of the layout for whatever reason. And as a result, you know, where other groups locally aren't interested in it, we really like it. And when we add it to the portfolio, it's super, you know, kind of a good boost to our cash flow. And it, we actually get a ton of arbitrage off of deals that, you know, local folks might think are too expensive. And obviously, you know, the inverse happens as well. But there's a, a Wall Street, Main Street disconnect on what people want. And I don't think that's any surprise. No, that doesn't come as a surprise at all. For example, in Richmond, we have a lot of old money real estate investors whose parents have owned property for, you know, and, and progenitors have owned property for a very long time. And they have different goals than a Wall Street investor and, you know, different time horizons, all that kind of a thing. So I'm curious about when you go to sell a portfolio to real to to excuse me, to Wall Street, what types of due diligence are they doing when they're looking at the portfolio? Like lease audits, financials, you mentioned the financials earlier, but you go into the properties and you know, going through them, inspecting them, do they inspect just a percentage? What do they do when they're looking at evaluating your properties? You know, it, t- it depends on the end buyer, but I would say the vast majority of the due diligence is financial. And one of the things that we do is we create internally audited reports and we have the third party kind of validate our audits so that when we go to exit, it's not something that's up for debate what the actual cash flows are. And so that's key, having a, you know, a, a stamp, a seal of approval that, you know, this does this much cash flow is is important to them. But, you know, some firms are a lot more hands-on and they will go and inspect every single property. Some will just do, you know, a market tour and, you know, kind of look at some of them, maybe look at a few different units. One of the ways that we try to add value at Exit is we take a ton of before and after pictures, mostly just because it's cool, but also because, you know, they like to see what it was like before, what it looks like now, what our standard renovations are. And we do, you know, internal scans and kind of walkable 3D models of every property post-reno. And so investors can actually go online and kind of walk some of our properties and some of our renovations and see exactly what it looks like. And they can do some of their, you know, inspections that way. But, you know, it just depends on the group. And sometimes they get annoyingly into the due diligence of it. Sometimes they don't. But, you know, if you can make sure that your properties, your asset, whatever you're selling is in really good shape before exit, you'll be fine either way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I'm also curious about when you go to acquire properties, when you're talking about 
two units, a duplex, all the way up to maybe 15. I wonder how much a commercial real estate brokerages play into your acquisition side of things. Are you dealing with them primarily? Is it more direct to seller? Are you on the MLS? Like, What are your options for finding deals to buy? Yeah. So we are big believers in off-market acquisitions. And I think a lot of people say that. In fact, I think every investor says they do, you know, all all (laughs) off-market, right? So I'm sure you hear that a lot. But what they typically mean by that is that they have a broker friend or they get pocket listings from a broker or something like that. We are 60 to 70% truly off-market, which means that we have a conversation directly with a seller with no intermediary whatsoever. And we actually reached out to them directly and contacted them ourselves, developed a relationship and go from there. The way that we do that is really omni-channel, every way that you can imagine somebody might be able to receive an inbound, we do it. So if it's mail, email, phone call, we're all over it. We have a very tight range on the types of properties that we want. So we can you know, kind of look at every single multifamily property in a market, cut it down to the ones that we really like, and then focus on hitting the sellers six to seven times, kind of the average that you need to do in order to you know, really get in touch with them. And then from then on, we develop a relationship. And if there's a, a deal to be had, then we go on to close. We have a team of acquisitions of spokes in New York where that's what their you know whole day-to-day is, is, is talking to sellers, understanding what's going on with the property, putting together an offer, and then bringing deals to close through a due diligence process, underwriting process, all that stuff. We do a ton of you know due diligence on our end as well. But you know, in this space, it's not like single family homes where somebody is like, oh, yeah, maybe I will retire and sell my house or something like that. Right. This is, you know, you know, our sweet spot is kind of a six to eight unit apartment building. A lot of times these are inherited. Sometimes people forgot that they inherited it. They're properties that are not being managed well or not being managed at all. And we come in, we sort of remind sellers that they own it. We offer them deals where they don't have to pay a broker fee so they get to save money. We can transact quickly and off market so they don't have to, you know, air their dirty laundry out on Zillow that they've got this, you know, property that's, you know, in terrible shape. And we can move really quickly to, you know, get it off of their hands so they can, you know, skip next year's tax payment or whatever it might be, which, you know, they're probably already skipping because they forgot about it. And so that's, you know, the typical kind of seller that we find. And when we're talking with them, it's just kind of a win, win, win. You know, the seller wins, we obviously win. And then the community gets a a property that's got, you know, maybe some vacant units in it. The exterior doesn't look good, you know, so on and so forth. You know, rehabbed, looking great, excellent new tenants in there. So it's, it's really good for the community and neighborhood too, which as a Midwesterner, I like to see because all of our cities have a little bit of, you know, Rust Belt, post 1980s wear and tear on them, but they've got a lot of potential. Awesome. So we've seen, before we go to three questions, I ask every guest on the show, with the rising interest rates and everything, we did see some shifting appetite for debt and lending on multifamily amongst lenders out there. It happened a little bit. I'm curious if Wall Street's appetite to buy these portfolios 
has been impacted at all? Do you see that coming? Are you not worried about what are your thoughts on just Wall Street's appetite in the long term? Yeah. So we like to say that our our model works in every climate, good economic cycle, bad economic cycle, high interest rate, low interest rate. But the truth of the matter is, is that in recessionary environments and high interest rate environments, our model is actually at its best because it's high yield and because recessionary fears sort of bring sellers to market. So right now, you know, we're hitting higher cap rates than we ever have before because of recessionary fears. And on the back end, our exit sort of cap rate is not that changed, maybe 25 bips, because we're still way higher yield than our larger multifamily friends out there that are, you know, have cap rates that are very close to interest rates, which from an underwriting perspective, depending on how familiar you are with real estate, is a problem. So for them, having higher interest rates is sort of a you know go no go decision on an acquisition or a refinance, or in some cases, you know, giving a property back to the bank, which happens. But in our case, we actually get way more inbounds from potential buyers, and you know, not necessarily institutional groups only, but a lot of private equity funds too to buy our fully leased up portfolios because it's one of the few multifamily asset classes that still has high enough yield that it can be financed in a way where debt is accretive and that you know they can make their you know typical returns on you know on their on their investment but you know we are slightly higher cap rates at entry maybe slightly higher although we actually have not seen that cap rate at exit and so we still stay in that range where, you know, we, we invest through a private equity fund. And so for us, we still hit that, you know, 2.1 to 2.4x net MOIC on a five-year hold basis that we've always done. You know, maybe we shifted up slightly, but did not really impact our, our end results. And if anything, kind of drove more attention to our space, which, you know, we're hoping continues. Not too much attention because we like to be, you know, one of the, one of the only operators, but enough attention that, it, you know, does well for us on the back end. Awesome. Well, I, you know, that I think the acronyms are probably one of the biggest signs that somebody is a Wall Street guy. There were a few you threw out there. BIPs is a big one. A lot of Wall Street guys will say BIPs instead of basis points or quarter of a percent because you said 25, 25 BIPs, 25 basis points. So great. I, I love all of this. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Ray, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah, the best investment that I have ever made by far is in my team, not just in my business partner, but also in all the folks that work for us locally and here in New York. It is expensive in dollars and it is expensive in time that it takes to apprentice these folks, but it is really the only way to succeed. It's not guaranteed success, but that's, you know, 
what I think really successful people have done is, you know, put together and groom an excellent team. And that by far has, you know, paid the most dividends for me. Awesome. Love it. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah, I don't have a lot of horror story investments, luckily, but to any bad investment I've ever made has something to do with not fully understanding what I'm investing in and not fully believing in what I'm investing in or investing in something that's overly complex for no reason. One of the reasons why we like multifamily real estate is that it's very tangible and obvious when you add value to it. It's very literal and it's not, you know, kind of floating out in the air what you're adding to it. One good example is, you know, while I was still working at another private equity fund, we invested in this. I just started, but we invested in this company. I didn't really understand it. I thought I was just new, but, you know, later on I came to realize that nobody really understood it. And I was very skeptical, maybe for the wrong reasons. Everybody else seemed really bullish, probably also for the wrong reasons. Bullish, there's another Wall Street term for you. <laughs> and anyway, long story short, it turned out very poorly and it had to do with us not understanding what it was and kind of getting bit in the rear end by, by that fact. So, you know, I always recommend really, really knowing what it is that you're buying that is obviously true for crypto and NFTs and things like that. And it's true really for any asset class. Absolutely. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, I think it's a little trite, but the number one thing, not just for work, but also for personal life is finding out what you're good at and what you like and doing that thing. And then finding out what you're bad at and what you don't like and filling in the gaps with something or someone. So, you know, there's a lot of trial and error that goes into that, trying out different jobs, seeing what you like, seeing what you don't like. There's a lot of tools out there, you know, take Myers-Briggs test and you'll, you'll learn a lot about yourself. But if it's a, a business partner that is really good at some things that you're not good at, then that's what you need. If it's a vendor or a teammate that is really good at something that you have no idea what's going on and your brain's just never going to wrap itself around that thing, then you need to add that in there and you just have to be really, you know, precise, structured and honest with yourself about what those things are because not everything is for everybody, whether that's, you know, investing in general, real estate investing, etc. I think one of the things that's nice about real estate is that there's investing, there's math, there's understanding markets, there's interpersonal relationships, there's sales, there's so many facets to it that a lot of people can slot in in some way, but you have to figure out how that how it is that you're going to slot in and, and do it the right way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these great lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah. Visit us at usaterra.com. We've got a lot of stuff on there about our, our renovations. We actually have some of those 3D walkthroughs that I mentioned that are kind of fun to play around with. But shoot us a note at info at We have a pretty good LinkedIn presence, Terra Capital. And there we post a lot of kind of our thought pieces on the market and the way things are going and how we're playing into that broader picture. But you know, we would love to connect, would love to interact on on LinkedIn, disagree with our articles, agree with them, have, you know, arguments with people in the comments. It's kind of fun. And yeah, we welcome, you know, any inbounds on that. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.